Welcome back to the Good Grow Great podcast, everyone. This is Six Degrees of Good. This is the segment there where we have two to three people sit down and they come from various different backgrounds, but soon enough, you'll see that they have sort of a six degree of separation type of situation where you get to learn as an audience and a listener, you get to hear about their journey from starting their own business, how they created something, maybe recently even, if they're just starting out, and you get the behind the scenes look of some of their successes and failures, and all the way to people who have 10, 20 plus years of experience creating this type of life that they really wanted and just doing it their way in a meaningful way. So today we have three very special people, and I love, I love, I love this episode because this is gonna kick you off if you are stuck, if you are in kind of in the middle point of your work and your life where you go, I really want something more out of this. This is for you. Now, the reason why is because we have Tom Langland, who is from the aviation industry, and he's been in the space in the domain since, gosh, and he's been going on, I think, for 21 years in the aviation industry, which is so great. And he had worked with folks like Boeing, of course, and he had worked as a, uh, a group that helped advance military aircraft assembly. He had also worked with turbo products, aero accessories, private jet solutions, and many, many more. And what's really cool, though, is that Tom started his journey in a very unconventional way. He said it himself, he's not even book smarts, and he didn't really like all the academics, and it wasn't really his thing, but he found his own path. So if you've ever felt like you're too small, or you're not enough, or something was missing, and you don't have what it takes, or you might not have what it takes because other people have all these cool things going on and going for them, then let's take a listen to how Tom really overcame that obstacle. And this is going to be great for you. Now, in the meantime, we'll also be hearing from Lynn Hawks. And Lynn is the creator of Success Story, which is interesting is that Lynn is pursuing an MFA in creative writing. And she had created a program for students who are applying to go into college. Now, some of you guys who have graduated and have gone past that, you know that it can be a very grueling process. And some of these college uh, colleges and admissions office, they look through thousands and thousands of, of application and only receive in some cases, 1% or less than 1%. In other cases, 10%. Either way, it's a grueling process. Now, this is something that we should pay attention to. Even if you've ever thought about writing an email that's important, a high stakes email, a proposal, applying for a job promotion, right? Applying for a certain project, wanting to get a client, a customer, right? Or reaching out to someone new, someone who's high level. This is a really something that's great because Lynn breaks down two things, two important things that most people forget that has to, has to work hand in hand before somebody will look through your message, your messaging, your story and go, yes, absolutely. Let's do this. We are going to continue the conversation also with Liz Gallo, who is the creator and founder of whymaker.co. Liz has worked with over 5,000 educators in the years that she's been in business. Her space is STEM and she works with, of course, educators and students. But we're going to hear about how Liz actually took a rapid growth in her business in the initial years and how she's, she did that 
and how you can do the same. And what's cool about Liz's story is that she also had encountered a near-death experience on her own. And we'll go behind the scenes of the life and death sort of decision-making that Liz had to go through so that she can uh, essentially be with us here today, alive and well and running her business. So without further ado, growth solvers, let's hit that follow and subscribe button. Let's do this. All right. Welcome, you guys, to the podcast. I'm so excited because you guys all have some amazing stories and I cannot wait to share them with the world. But I thought that we'd start with Tom. And Tom, you're in aviation, which I'm always fascinated by. I think this is so super interesting, and particularly now as well, because you do see certain paradigm shifts happening, right? Which is so cool. Things are changing. But you've been in the business for, is it 20 years, 20 plus years or so? Yeah, over 20 20 years now. Okay, wow. Now, how did you start? Is this something that you've always loved doing or did you stumble upon this? Yeah, you know, it started uh, started when I was a child. My dad was a pilot and I had uh, other relatives that were pilots. And some of my first memories of flying are with my uh, with my dad and the family in the in the airplane going to visit uh, grandma and grandpa. So um, it started with that. Uh, I had uh, uncles that were also pilots, uh, which just I was completely fascinated by and trying to find a way to, you know, combine making a living. And also flying was uh, something that I wanted to do and, and try to find a, find a way. Um, being, I was interested in being an airline pilot, but being an airline pilot is very difficult starting out with. Yeah. You, you actually begin making 20000 a year, and uh, it takes about 10 years just to become a, a true airline pilot uh, into the, the major airlines. Uh, and that was just something I wasn't interested in doing. And uh, finding a way to combine aviation as a passion, but also as something I can, uh, as an industry, uh, worked out really good. Well, what I love about your, uh, it seems like your journey through aviation is that you, it started at a very young age. And it's a lot of people who started to love something when they're really young often falls out of love with it, right? Or just, they just kind of develop this weird complex relationship with it where they're like, oh, this is a hobby and it'll just remain a hobby or, oh, this is something that I no longer love because it, because they know too much sometimes, right? About it. Now, your father, you said, is an airline was or maybe still is an airline uh pilot he was a pilot just a a general aviation uh just for fun right and so what what are some memories that stood out for you when you know as a young boy you're hanging out with your dad in you know maybe just on in the sky or maybe going is starting to get ready for that flight or whatever what are some favorite memories that you that you always recall whenever you you think about that time Sure. Um, one time we were flying home from my uh, grandparents' house and it was on the 4th of July. And uh, we were actually watching the fireworks uh, go off from up above, looking down on the fireworks. And uh, that was something that always made a big impression on me. And really just the idea of getting in an airplane and a lot of people call them uh, time machines because, uh, you know, a six or eight hour drive can turn into just a, a one, two hour flight. 
and just being able to go visit all the different places and within, you know, 500 or 800 miles of our home in just a matter of an hour or two is just something that I found was incredible and something that is very, very rare uh, uh, in what you could do. Yeah, and I love that. I mean, you mentioned that within just hours, you'd be you'd be in a completely different place. And sure. uh, I was talking to somebody else on on the podcast about how, and I can't remember who had quoted this story and had put it this way: is that ages ago, years ago, of course, when people go from East Coast to West Coast, by the time they're done with it, because there's no there are no airplanes or whatever, they, it's like a whole different group. Like people have died, people have gotten married, have kids, and so it's interesting that we now kind of take this uh, this technology for granted, and um and and uh, and, th- and yet now here you are just kind of uh, letting that uh, moment uh, continue in your in your passion and just uh, continue with it throughout the the course of your career. Now speaking. Of of childhood memories, right? Uh, Liz, you work with educators and um, you're, you're in this world of STEM. And uh, just, I'm sure everyone, most people already know what STEM is, but can you touch just a second, just real briefly, what STEM is for the audience who's listening, who's not familiar with the, with the topic? So STEM is an acronym for science, technology, engineering, and math. And STEM to me and to lots of educators is a way we teach our children to solve problems, come up with solutions, um, include technology, engineering into their studies and connect all of those disciplines together so that students have a really rich learning experience. Right, because this is a topic that's really important, right? I, I don't, I don't think people really appreciate it as, as much as it should, and it's gaining some momentum, it's gaining some attention. But what I notice that, I mean, I have two kids, and even though they're generally interested in certain things, you do find that the message, if it's delivered in certain ways, they're just like, this is not interesting at all, right? And I think what STEM has done for all of these amazing kids and even the educators is is really change the way that, uh, you know, all of these things are absorbed. Now, you have worked with over 5,000 educators, um, you know, in the in the three years that you've been in business. Like, what was that kind of early days uh, look like for you to start gaining momentum? Were people fairly receptive or did you kind of get some some uh, kind of, uh, I guess, some pushback? What, what, would, what was that like? So in the early days, I, well, I was a technology education teacher for over 10 years and then stepped out of the classroom and stepped into Ymaker to do professional development. So I had a lot of connections all around the state, all around the country of people who were interested to learn the way I was teaching technology. Uh, And that's kind of the reason I started was because I realized that kids and other teachers weren't having the same experiences that I was having in my classes with my students. And that's one of the reasons I started the company because I wanted to give as many kids and teachers these opportunities. So when I first started, it actually was was a pretty quick uptake on people who were interested in this because people, you know, knew my name. We had, I had a bunch of connections and we were ready to roll right away. So it was a pretty, pretty fast takeoff. 
Nice. This is amazing because I think what you just touched on is basically your perspective and uh, being able to share that perspective to people who need it, who don't have that perspective, right? Like you are looking at it from a certain way and all these other people can also look at it from that way or others, but they just don't have the tools or maybe the infrastructure almost, right? And I mean, speaking of learning and students, Tom, you mentioned that when you were younger, you had no interest in getting straight A's. I mean, Lynn, who's who we're going to speak to in a minute uh, is an academic, of course. But what was uh, for you, Tom, what was that experience like uh, just go- going through college? Did you feel like you're out of place and you're like, this is not for me? What was that like? <laughs> no, it's kind of interesting. Um, I, I, w- I don't have the talent of, of classroom, academic, bookwork uh, type type skills. Um, growing up, I, I realized that I found that there's different kinds of people. There's some that are really talented at schoolwork and they excel in that and they find an industry or, or a, 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 a career path that, that leverages on that. And there's the other side where it's more about hard work and now knowing and knowing your specific industry. Uh, and it's not anything that you can really glean from a book that, uh, that's, that has to do with your industry. So there's nothing, there's no, uh, major or education background that says uh, aircraft certification or aircraft uh, manufacturing production. Uh, it, it's all more on on the job training, and uh, so I knew going into it that uh, you can, you can either you can work hard and get straight A's in school, but there's also still a whole nothing another learning curve there. So I focused more on internships. Uh, jobs outside of school. And uh, I enjoyed college very much so, but it was uh, probably to the detriment of my grades. Um, <laughs> I had a great experience, but I also realized that there's a trade-off, right? So in career fairs, for instance, in, in, in college, um, you know, I, I had a, a, a C average uh, GPA and there were some of the higher end, you know, uh, uh, companies like Boeing and Lockheed Martin and, uh, you know, they're there to receive resumes and, and, and chat with students. And, uh, you know, we'd have a great discussion and I'd be ready to hand them a resume and they'd ask, oh, what's your GPA? And it's, you know, 2.5. Like, oh, well, we don't, we don't, we don't even want to accept your, your resume at this point. We're, we're accepting <laughs> 3.5s or better. Right. And, uh, and, and, and I realized that that's, that's a give and take. And I realized then I'm going to have to work harder uh, outside of the classroom versus excelling in the classroom. And it's, I like to say I chose that, but I, I think that my limitations in the classroom, I, I recognize early and uh, I wasn't frustrated with uh, the lack of A's, for instance, yeah. uh, in my education and uh, academic career. But I focus more on hard work and gaining that knowledge outside of the classroom for me. Right. And there is definitely the value of understanding that there are multiple different paths, right, to a, right. one single destination. And anybody can take any path that they choose. Of course, not all paths are better for them specifically, <laughs> but it's just up to the right. judgment of the individual, which you've done so beautifully in your career. You just go, you know what? This is my road to aviation. I'm going to do it this way because I don't right. have this other thing or whatever. Now, Lynn, you work with uh, people in in success story, right? And you're 
in your concept success story. Uh, do you find that people tend to have, uh, you know, also these certain, maybe not so much uh, uh, limiting mindset, but they have like a preconceived idea of how they have to get to a certain place or a certain point or finish writing, right? And then how do you do you de- deconstruct it? Like, what do you do when you're when you're faced with that situation? Well, so I'm finding a lot of connections here because, like Liz, I was a, a second. I don't know if you're a secondary educator, but I've taught middle and high school for 13 years, and then worked with gifted youth through online programs. So. Success story, which is, you know, college essay consulting, I really um, run into a lot of kids who, like you, Tom, are thinking, oh, you know, I'm not that book learning kind of kid. I want to get into college, but I'm not a writer. And I'm like, actually, you're a storyteller. And the especially Gen Z is very much a Netflix generation visual they 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 came up with memes (laughs) along with millennials they know how to communicate visually and so when I explain to people that you're a movie maker as you write your college application essay I've had so many students say to me oh I I'm actually kind of good at this and I'm like yeah you know how to tell a story it's just we you know we use things back to like Liz with technology I mean Google voice typing is a godsend because you know you tell yeah. A non-writer, I'm putting my fingers up in quotes here, <laughs> that, you know, oh, you can't, you know, they, they tell themselves they can't write, but then you turn on the Google voice typing and they start telling a personal story, which is exactly what colleges want. And that's the hard thing. I think they feel, students feel like it's a job application, which it is, but it's not a formal cover letter. It's a chance to tell your story and say, this is the unique thing about me. Only I am obsessed with cars the way I am. I actually had a boy say to me, I can write about my obsession with cars. I said, absolutely. Tell that story because you're going to show the school that you're committed, that you research something in depth and that you're passionate because what's going to, what's the number one fear colleges have that you won't finish. Like they're going to take you in and you're going to leave at the end of freshman year. So are you persistent? Are you focused? Do you, are you, will you go down that rabbit hole of research? They love that. And then once they realize they have those qualities, they're like, oh, I can do this. <laughs> so that's kind of a long-winded answer to your question. But I love, like, paradigm shifting their view of themselves. I and mean, that's just such a, a joy for me doing this. Yeah. And I think what uh, what I kind of notice, and I love that you're underlining this, is that you everybody has, and I think this is true as well in, in most domains, I think definitely aviation and definitely uh, education and STEM and uh, Lynn, what you're doing as well. And of course, audience who is listening, who are in business in different forms, uh, entrepreneurship, or maybe even just progressing with their career, sometimes to get to a certain point, get ahead of whatever, it is about painting a picture for somebody else, whether that's with words or now tools, right? Or now maybe, I don't know, presentations, proposals, whatever that is, um, sometimes that has to be put into into a story, which I think is is beautifully highlighted, um, Lynn, by you. Now, speaking of stories, you were um, you were traveling in Italy, and um, and was this kind of like one of those? I know some people travel to Italy and they go to uh, to to Rome and they they go during the New Year's, which is super fun. I've done that actually once before. It's so much fun. Um, was that the purpose of the trip, or was that like a business trip or more kind of a, a career a trip? Well, kind of um, aging myself here, but it was it was the '80s, and I had a backpack of about thirty pounds, uh-huh. <laughs> and then the Reeboks, the blindingly white Reeboks, and me and my friend were backpacking through Italy and Greece as a college kid. And um, 
we just ended up in Rome, you know, it's like, we were going to go to Rome, we're going to do Florence, but we never thought we would run into the Pope. Um, so I don't know if you want me to tell that story. <laughs> you, run, you run into the Pope or you went to like St. Peter's Basilica and then you saw the Pope doing something like, how do you mean well, run into the Pope? <laughs> well, we were just wandering around and we weren't at the Basilica. We were at a little church nearby. I can't even recall what part of the city we were in. And there was this big banner that said Papa. And we were like, Papa? What is that the Pope? Is that the name for the Pope? And we're like, let's just go inside. And they had metal detectors that are running over us. <laughs> and we're like, oh, okay. We, you know, we didn't speak Italian. When we go, we stood behind the barrier and it got really crowded very quickly. And I got pressed up against the little barricade thing. And Pope John Paul II was moving back and forth. And by the way, I, you know, I come from a Catholic family. I'm not currently practicing, but this was like kind of a big deal for my aunt Angelina and other people when they heard this, but I'm like pressed up against the barricade and he just stopped and, and randomly spoke to people and he grabbed my hands and he said something to me in Italian. And I thought, Oh my gosh. Okay. I don't, I don't know. <laughs> Say back. And then I thought, I bet he's asking me where I'm from because I looked as American as you could look, like a college kid. And I said, Americani? And he goes, ah. And he said in English, God bless you. And then moved on. And I was like, I told my family, they're like, you've been blessed by the Pope. You can do anything, kid. Like, you know, I'm 19. So that was my, I, I feel like a lot of things in my life have been like, they just, I listened to your podcast the other day where you talked about someone, someone you were speaking to said things just fell into place. Yeah. That's kind of with, I mean, business ownership and startups are not easy, but the moment to start it kind of felt like that story. I think that's why I told that to you. That's <laughs> so. amazing. That's a, that's a great story. And I, I have heard amazing stories about how they, they seem to be, and I don't know if they train this, this is a side note, of course, if they train the, the popes to, to do this, but they seem to know at least some greetings in multiple different languages, which is yes. so cool. I thought, you yeah. know, but to be blessed by the Pope, right. And, and just kind of be in that public kind of chaos situation where you're just like, Oh, okay. I guess this is happening. But, um, you know, speaking of public uh, chaos, Tom, you have, uh, is it true that you've, this is, this, this seems like a weird story. You're going to have to clarify because you fell into this. What, what is this story with St. Louis Arch? Oh, yeah. Um, I've learned not to reach for coins in the fountain <laughs> when I was a kid. Um, this was before they renovated the St. Louis Arch and they have fountains inside at the very bottom uh, of the entry. And uh, I don't know, I was probably three, well, maybe, I don't know, maybe five or six, seven. Uh, I was reaching for a coin in the, in the fountain and sure enough, I slipped and went headlong right into the fountain and uh, was soaked from head to toe. And as a crowded summer afternoon and the whole the whole area just erupted in cheers and, and uh, clapping. And uh, I ended up having to sit outside on the, on the stairs to dry off in this hot summer day for two hours while everyone else got to go up into the arch and I had to sit there and uh, just dry off. Yeah. You have to air dry yeah. <laughs> to unsoak yeah. yourself. Yeah. yeah. This is, so, I mean, this is kind of interesting though, right? Cause like even at that age, if you're whatever, five or seven, you're still old enough to know that, 
oh my goodness, this is embarrassing, right? Oh yeah. Um, and uh, and I mean, we always talk about how fearless kids are, but that's I don't know if that's necessarily true in certain cases because you're like everyone's looking at me, and I think this is true as well. In um, you know, we talk about decision making a lot in this podcast because sometimes you're at that moment where you're like, okay, I can react this way or I can react this other way, right? What was your? Did you feel like was it utter humiliation? Was it was it kind of like, oh, this is hilarious because everyone's clapping. Like, oh no, your I, I wanted to disappear. Yeah, you want to, <laughs> to get out of it. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> what was the reaction of your? I'm assuming your parents were there. Were they kind yes. of reacting? How were how were they reacting? Uh you know, they they just seemed to take it with stride. They didn't uh, have any. They, you know, they weren't punishing me or anything. I think they knew that I felt pretty bad already. So uh, they, I think they try to minimize the situation for me. I, I know that um, for people who are listening who have kids as well, I do this as well. When they were little, sometimes when when they fall, they look to us, to the parent and be like, okay, how's your reaction? Because I'm going to oh, react yeah. the same way that you are, right? Isn't this right. interesting? Like, And then you go, oh, okay. And I learned just from my friends and everyone, I'm like, oh, maybe if I clap and just kind of smile, I'm like, oh, are you okay? And, and that <laughs> seems to kind of normalize everything. But then if I'm like, oh, and they like, oh, I'm crying <laughs> and they're yeah. dying. With our kids, we try not to make eye contact because they're waiting to see if you're going to, you know, you know, go run up and, you know, kiss and hug and all this kind of stuff. And, and they'll start crying. But if, if they don't see you, if they didn't think you saw them, they just kind of brush it off and move on. Yeah. Yeah. They're just like, they're, they look and they're like, oh, it's no big deal. I'll just move on. Yeah. Yep. So, oh, I didn't see yeah. that. I didn't see that. Yeah. I, I kind of learned that this is something is interesting, which I think for as an adult now, right? Like it's interesting for us to kind of always be having that reminder. Oh, I can self check and course correct at any moment. Like I'm in control of almost everything. Sure. Uh, almost not everything, of course, but, um, but this is interesting. Now I do want to touch on because uh, Liz, your kind of moment wasn't necessarily when you were younger. And this seems to be a little bit more, uh, dare I say dangerous, because I feel like you're out there in the wild. So tell the story about how you were, you found yourself uh, out in the outdoors on your own. Mm, so it's very similar to all the things you all just said. Um, about three years ago, I went on a solo hiking trip around the southwest of America, and I got a tip from a local guide to go to this easy hike, 45 minutes in, easy hike, straight flatland. Uh, and I was like, okay, I'll do it. So I went early in the morning, only car in the parking lot. Um, hiked in to see toadstools, which are skinny rocks uh, that are like pedestals, which have this big, heavy rock sitting on top. Uh, beautiful, gorgeous colors of red and burnt orange and stripy um, patterns. It was absolutely gorgeous. Uh, but as I was hiking in, I was off the trail and I knew I was off the trail and I didn't know where the trail was. Mm. So I was following a dried riverbed that would take me to see these toadstools. So I was like, okay, great. Toadstools over. So on my way back, I didn't even know where the trail was because I didn't come on the trail. I couldn't get back on the trail. So I started, but I knew which direction I needed to go. So I started moving back towards my car and I came across these two step-like rocks. So I stepped down 
two steps and then I was overlooking a much bigger jump. Uh, and down below, I thought it was sand that I would land into. And I was like, ah, should I jump? Should I go back the other way? And I made the decision to jump, uh, landed, heard my ankles shatter, uh, and realized my first reaction was, no, I just have to crawl. So I started crawling on my hands and knees. And I crawled for about a half a mile, 30 minutes, until I heard someone above me called to them for help. They gave me a piggyback ride out and then drove me to the hospital. And uh, the rest of the story is written in a book called Surfing on Rocks. Okay, there's so many questions. <laughs> because, I mean, first of all, I'm so glad that, um, you know, somebody found you and gave you a piggyback, right, which we'll touch on in just a second. But I I know, you know, because I, I do spend a quite a, big, a bit of time outdoors as well. I'm so glad that you this happened to you when it's still daylight, right? Because you mm-hmm. do hear uh, stories about how people find themselves in tricky situations outdoors when it's when the sun's setting. And that's really when things mm-hmm. get dangerous, right? Like the sun is setting, everything gets colder. I was, it was early in the morning. It was first thing in the morning. I was really actually concerned about the heat. I was wow. in the Utah desert in the middle of July. Mm. I was concerned that I was going to run out of water there and just kind of, there was no trees, it's just rock and sand. So that's wow. what I was concerned about. So you were on your knees and on your, uh, I'm assuming your, you know, your hands and knees. Four. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, like crawling so- like a baby. Yeah. And you just kind of kept going down and you, do you have a backpack on you as well? Or is mm-hmm. that? Yeah. Okay. Yep. So that's backpack. added. This is really, uh, and did you have long pants or was it kind of shorts? Oh, I had shorts yeah. and In sneakers Utah. that I yeah. wear around the city, like not even <laughs> hiking boots. <laughs> yeah, this is, this is, I'm so glad that the story ended the way that it did because, uh, because um, it, you are in your elements, right? And again, we talked about decision making. I think Lynn is like helping people make this kind of uh, granular decision. Your story can go this way or it can go that way. Tom is like, well, I'm a kid, but I'm going to choose to kind of laugh it off. And then Liz, you're like in survival mode where you go, yeah. you know what? I'm just going to crawl. I mean, that's all that we can do, right? So where, when you found this uh, this Good Samaritan, we could say like, is was he or she like they? Were they kind of like, oh, what should we do? Like, what was kind of happening at that moment when you guys realized that you need help? So it was um, a couple, a young couple from Mexico. Uh, They, like, I was below them because I'm crawling around the dried riverbed and they were on rocks just above me. So they peered over and they were hesitant. I felt like they didn't know what I was, like, what was going on. Um, but then, I mean, his instant reaction was to come down and help me give me a piggyback mm-hmm. ride out. And she actually was a fellow teacher. So the whole time she's doing the teacher thing, oh, it's not so bad. You're going to be okay. It's not broken. You're not, no, it it's broken. It like it's not going to be okay. <laughs> and, <laughs> and I'm like, I, I think I said to her at one point, I was like, I know your teacher tricks. Well, what um, I found interesting is that you were saying that, and of course, thank thank them. We're thanking them for the great thing that they've done for you. But um, mm-hmm. I think you highlighted an interesting point in that sometimes when you do see other people in these situations, you're kind of like we're all kind of going, 
wait, what's happening? Should I help? Should I go there? Is this going to embarrass them? Is this going to embarrass me? Right. Almost like if we're really honest, sometimes that's the conversations uh, that's happening in our head. Right. And, um, and yet the, and maybe it's the function of, you know, there's this teacher and there's this, you know, the, her husband or partner or whatever. And together they're kind of like, no, we should probably help her, <laughs> you know? And um, yeah. so I found that this is so interesting because it's kind of like, it reminded me of that movie from years back with James Franco out in the wild. What is it called? Like 127 hours or something or days or whatever. Um, yep. Where he is, is that the, the title? I don't know if anyone. I don't know what the title is, but that movie came out the same time this happened. So wow. everyone was like, oh, you could have been that guy. And I'm like, right. no. Is it yeah. into the wild? Is it? Is it? Into is it? Into, no, I I don't know what it's called, and I'm I, I'm so sorry that I'm misquoting here. But he basically he was playing a real, uh, you know, a real story about how one guy got stuck in I think it was Arizona or maybe Utah even, and he got his hand or something, uh, one of his limbs stuck in some crevice, and he uh, realized that where he is, no one's going to find him. So after hours upon hours upon hours, he goes, okay, I have to cut my arm or hand i can't remember um and that's the only way i can get out of here alive so he was literally just kind of grinding away so um (laughs) and so that kind of your story kind of reminded me i'm so glad that somebody found you because i don't know would you have been able to go up and climb up um the because you were down on the riverbed right so were you would you have been able to go up on your own do you think so the interesting part, every time I like look back at the terrain, I don't know exactly where I was crawling. So I don't know what would have happened. Mm. Um, I'm pretty tough and I would have been able to climb over anything. My goal was to just crawl back to the parking lot. I actually didn't think I'd run into anybody else because I knew I'd have cell phone service as soon as I got to the parking lot and I would have called an ambulance. Um, but that, that was my plan. Uh, I wasn't really expecting to find anybody, but I'm glad I did. And the whole book actually is about all the strangers I met on my journey uh, and how wonderful they all were in their own little way. So it talks about like 15 different strangers I met right. along the journey. That's beautiful. That's wonderful. Yeah. Um, I should definitely check that out. But I'm, I'm yeah. curious, though, because now you've written a, a book on this story. Lynn, of course, your uh, your background is in writing and, and creative writing as well. And some of the listeners who are listening, uh, and whether they're entrepreneurs or not, some of them are going, well, I have to write this, whether that's a blog or whatever, an email, maybe even to some boss or maybe even a potential book. Um, and I know people talk about writer's block, right? There's a block. And I think this is not just a writer's block. I think this is like an any kind of progress block maybe is a better way to say it because we can counter this again and again in different domains. Um, in aviation, I was just Tom, I was just talking to somebody else in aviation and they're saying that they had difficulty in the early days to figure out, well, how do I share my business? Everyone is doing postcards and we're now into digital like how do it? So there's a block anywhere. So Lynn, I'm curious to hear what your thoughts are on. How do you kind of help your, your, you know, people who work with you? How do you help them kind of unpack some of those blocks? That's a great question. Um, one of the activities, and I was just actually doing a video, like a little tips video for social media, um, is an activity I did with my students when I was in the classroom. It was the objects of importance presentation where they would get up for a minute and make a speech about an object of importance in their life. And I remember one girl brought in cookies because she was a baker and one boy brought in his, um, 
bike, his freestyling bike, and we went out and he did tricks in the breezeway as he like flipped his bike around with his body still on it. And this was this representation of self. It was a way to get to know you. Um, and one of the things I tell writers of all types, you know, whether I'm working with a novelist or I'm working with my students in, in success story is to ground yourself in details, little stories. So you, you might, um, I mean, in the way that Liz, you just talked about, you met 15 people and each of them was a story. And I, you know, you've probably more than that to your book, I know, but it's like those 15 people are kind of like the objects of importance that I talk about with students. I say, go through your backpack, go through a shelf, a drawer, look around your personal space. What are the memories and the little stories that you see around you, the things you've held on to, your personal shrine? Um, and so with, with writers too, you know, even if it's like a more, like a lot of times the kids have to write an essay, like, why do you want to go to USC? Or why do you want to go to Georgetown? But that still has to be grounded in details. I tell them, you know, it's 50% about you and your details and 50% about Georgetown. So ground yourself in that, those lists of the details. Mm-hmm. I had a great writer friend who mentored me, Dr. Al Benthal, who said, it's the significant particulars. And he took this from a poet, I think William Blake, about poets write, you know, when you read a great poem, it's really grounded in nature or imagery, right? All great writing that sticks with us is, is imagery, sound, you know, all the senses. Um, you know, even if it's nonfiction, you read the Alexander Hamilton biography, it's full of those rich, significant particulars. So that's kind of where I start people with brainstorming. And I think it really helps them get out of blocks is just to go through their personal stuff or their memories and make lists. So that's, that's one tip I use. That's so interesting. I love that your approach is actually more grounded in kind of the day-to-day, okay, this is where I can build uh, my copy around, right? I think a lot of people, uh, particularly in, in um, definitely in careers and, and business, they they talk about their copy and their messaging and they go, okay, well, how do I do that? A lot of times what you're saying, it seems almost that a lot of people just kind of stay too far up in the sky and they don't really have the they need to start to to kind of grow the concept from a ground level which i think is so interesting you if somebody is looking to write a story about um you know let's say tom is looking to write about his aviation right um and his experience in aviation would you recommend him to kind of start with uh, you know, maybe maybe his first, the first, uh, I don't know, the seat or is it the vomit bag? Like, what's what? Are you, what are some <laughs> things? Walk us through the steps for a second. I yeah, I mean, if if Tom, you were writing the book of your life, I you just told the two great stories and the 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 fireworks image might be an opening image that you know list some of these little memories. Then you pull back the camera, and I love that you used um, Talia that you said sky. You know, you go back into the sky. Writing is two things. It's seen those moments I was just talking about the details and it's summary. And the problem that why do we get bored? It's when the voiceover narrator comes in and just talks to us too much. Now there can be a great voiceover narrator, you know, like Forrest Gump. I mean, you can listen to him. You can listen to whoever telling the story. They have to have a really strong voice, but you've got to be sure that you're not doing too much sports commentating and, and that's the balance. So I would say, Tom, you know, make two lists, list all your memories, tell your little stories, then write your sports commentary. And you're pulling back the camera on the other side of what are the big points you want to hit. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I'm working with students who only have like 650 words or 200 words to do this, those 
double-sided lists of the significant particulars and then the, like the big ideas, you know, they keep moving between those. And it's, um, it's kind of hard to do. I mean, it's really, I mean, it's, it's doable, but you, you kind of have to get into that habit of like getting that, those two sides of your brain working at the same time. But once you do that, you, you then you have a lot of material to play around with and you'll kind of know what order, how do you want to order this? Should I start with the fireworks or should I start with the fountain story? What does the fountain story have to do with flying? Oh, maybe it doesn't relate. I'll toss it out. Um, you know, that's, I mean, writers, all we do is revise. So <laughs> this is just like the first step of brainstorming. Kids know this as topic sentences and thesis statements right. that they were taught to do in English class. But if you do too much of that in a college essay, the admissions reader's eyes just glaze over and they're like, I don't want to hear an academic essay. I just want just enough of that pullback summary occasionally, just a little mm-hmm. bit of that narrator occasionally. Yeah. Now I love, I, I love all of those. Uh, I love that framework, the scene and summary. And, um, but I am curious though, uh, Liz, in your context, when you're working with these thousands of educators, um, I'd imagine that maybe initially some people are like, oh, how does this work again? Like, you know, I think right now my kids are using a thing called edgenuity. And I think it's, it's, I'm not sure I've, I've been hearing mixed opinions about that particular framework. Of course, it's a platform, which is slightly different from STEM, which is a, a broader uh, concept. But um, you know, when you're kind of introducing this idea to people who are may not, may or may not be familiar with it, what what are some things that you you like to keep in mind to share it with other people? Because I mean, persuasion is one thing, right? But I think having them to stand on our side and just be like, oh, I get it, you know, like what uh, what are some things that you do to share your uh, what how why maker can help them? I like what Lynn just said. Thinking about the work that I do, it's a lot of scene versus summary because teachers need the the scene. They need to know how do I do this in my classroom? Tell me step by step. But it's also the summary, the what is the benefit of doing this? Why am I going to change what I'm doing uh, to do it this way? What I've been saying lately to educators uh, since we've been in this crazy COVID remote hybrid crazy school world is There's a bunch of research out there that says that 40% of our workforce will remain remote after the pandemic is over. So I tell teachers, you need to be training your students. You need to understand that 40% of your students are probably going to have remote jobs when they graduate. And the other 60% of your students are going to be interacting with someone remote at their job. So you're going to, so they need skills to learn how to be remote workers. And what I teach is really those skills, those, those processes, those critical thinking, problem solving that leads kids to be thoughtful and empathetic and understanding and, um, you know, coming up with solutions that really help lots of people. And that's, that's the message that I'm sharing is that STEM isn't, it isn't about the toys and the, the, the cutesy robots and the fun games online. It, that's the hook, the, the meat of it, or the, the summary is the, the empathy-based problem solving, right. uh, the empathy-based design thinking we do with educators. Uh, and that's really how I frame the work I do. 
Right. And I think this is, there's certain things, certain lessons here that Liz has just shared that I actually like to highlight for and underline for our audience who's listening is that you have, um, you know, again, kind of along the same lines as what Lynn is saying, you have to basically share, okay, this is the how, but this is also long term. This is how it's going to be impacting right? Uh, uh, your, your work. And I think that's so important. I think a lot of people just kind of veer heavily on, you know, the, the benefits or heavily on the features and not so much having that congruent, just that connective tissue. That's so, so important. Now I do imagine Tom in aviation, even without digital, even years ago, right? That uh, you starting out in the business, in the industry, it might be something that is also uh, challenging, right? You don't have all these tools and maybe to some degree your space right now still operate offline. I'm not sure. But, um, you know, Liz touched on, okay, we need to develop these skills to uh, to basically teach people how to work remotely. And a lot of times it sure. seems to me, I don't know if this is true or not, but in aviation, a lot of the work is remote, right? Even in, in your work with what uh, the products that you offer, a lot of it is is kind of this uh, almost a remote and just individual uh, craft that you're doing, right? So what are some sure. things that you absolutely, uh, I guess you absolutely enjoy doing that maybe some other, your end product, your end cons- uh, consumer not nece- don't necessarily kind of uh, uh, understand immediately? What are some of those things? Yeah, most of our end, end users don't really understand any of it other than getting from point A to point B. Um, You know, going back to Liz's points for, for uh, interaction, we're very much global and not only are we doing Zooms, but we're also doing global international uh, Zoom calls and you can have phone calls at nine o'clock at night because you're interacting with uh, Chinese engineers or you're dealing with, uh, you know, people in, Kazakhstan or someone over in Europe, all using this uh, new technology. And uh, it's, it's quite interesting, but challenging as well. The difficulties in engineering and certification and, and aviation is uh, quite high, right? There's, a, there's no uh, gray area. It's very much uh, engineering oriented and very specific meeting uh, regulatory requirements and regulations. And um, but dealing with an international aspect and then also a remote aspect, it's it's, it's quite interesting. And in and, and trying to find that the feelings involved in this digital age is, is can be challenging, uh, to say the least. And finding that empathy yeah. uh, is very, very difficult uh, yeah. in this well, global environment. And I'm kind of curious because it seems like your work, uh, of course, there's the digital aspect, the virtual aspect of it. But you also, I mean, you know, people do fly. They go on their planes and they, they, they go around. Maybe perhaps you still fly as well. And to that degree, you're also, you know, master of your own domain. And maybe there are instances or times when things don't go the, the way that you expected, kind of like Liz's stories, uh, story in the wild. And um, what are, I know that in aviation, people who fly, they do like, a, you know, they do their checks, there's a checklist. Um, what's kind of your take? What's your approach on expecting the unexpected? Like, what do you kind of tell yourself if something goes wrong? Engine is like making weird noises. Like, what do you tell yourself? Well, I mean, honestly, I've been flying. I've got, 
I had my pilot's license uh, for almost 18 years. And uh, so far, knock on wood, I've never had any in-flight emergencies, any anomalies, or any time where I've had to have a uh, unplanned emergency stop or anything. So it's it's kind of strange, but the goal is, you know, you want boring and consistency in, in aviation. And uh, so far, I've been able to accomplish that. Right. That's, <laughs> um, that's so interesting that you mentioned. I mean, I know theoretically we know this, that you want it, things to be safe and smooth. But it is interesting, right? Because like people think that to do something that, that you love, like, oh, we're looking for like the, the highs, we're looking for those hits. But then you, yeah. to your point, you're like, no, 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 we're looking for just kind of, we want a good ride. We don't want anything yeah. to Normal and boring. Normal right. <laughs> and boring. So this is this is a good point though, because let's bring it back down to our day to day and what Lynn is saying with with writing, for instance. You have these two kind of frameworks to to latch on, right? The scene and the summary. And um, I am interested in because a lot of people are now to our points. It, we're all kind of learning to to work on uh, at home or on, on on our own for the most part. Um, how do you, Lynn, how do you kind of teach people who you work with uh, to what is kind of the the best practices for the day-to-day process outside of, of course, the outline and how the writing actually comes out, but like at the desk, like, is there, is there like a, a best go-to, like have this coffee, don't have, like, what is, what are some <laughs> of your things that you've discovered in the past? Well, you're pointing out something truly important, which is the the habit and the daily work, right? You can say you're a writer, but never write. Um, and you might have all the talent in the world, but nothing gets done. One of the things that I decided early on in my business, and I learned this from being a classroom teacher where you had to have ritual structure and lesson plans for students and, you know, maybe three activities in 45 minutes, you know, that kind of cycle. I decided that this business needed to have a structure of weekly deadlines for my students. Because even though I was a, I'm a college essay tutor and what I'm selling is personalized, individualized writing coaching, the parents and the students say to me all the time, I'm so glad you have Wednesday and Sunday deadlines because it doesn't haunt them and it doesn't haunt me. I don't have to keep asking, when do you have stuff due for Lynn? You know, what's, and, and that was something I learned from our distance learning programs too, that I ran at, at Duke TIP, the talent identification program, that Kids needed a regular cycle of engagement for their discussion board posts. Okay, I have to post on Wednesdays and Sundays. My deadlines are always Sundays. And as a writer, I mean, I have to show up every day to the page. That's my job. But I realized that for my students who are very busy, they've got, you know, sports, they've got all these different things in their lives. They're going, coming and going. They, you know, just even having two deadlines. And then I talk a lot about, and this is just another ritual I teach, Never, ever, ever click submit if you have not done the old school print and pull out, you know, your favorite color pen and read it aloud. Because um, I think we all know, I mean, I I went from analog to a digital life, (laughs) you know, had the old Mac 2 with the insertable disc in college to like living online constantly. But you miss something sometimes reading on screen. I have become the, you know, the really distracted scroller. And so printing your essays out, no matter how small and reading them aloud and hearing where your tongue trips up and, you know, reading it to someone else, suddenly you have audience again and it's, it's left off the screen. So I think those two things of schedule and then reading aloud to hear your voice and hear the language and the flow um, has made a lot of difference for people to have that end ritual and then the, you know, the regular ritual. But 
in summary, you're only a writer if you write regularly. So you need to write at least two or three times a week. And that's the kind of structure I like to give my students. Right. So having this, I love this, having this kind of self-regulated, almost like the schedule runs itself, right? Like you're not even uh, dabbling with, oh, is it Monday or is it Thursday? Like, oh, no, I'm not, I'm just going to do it. It's always Wednesdays and and Sundays when they're they're due or whatever it is that you want to finish is due. And I think this is true as well for anybody who wants to finish anything. Um, And I I find that this is kind of interesting because all throughout school, we've gone through school with, you know, the bell is ringing, right? The bell rings and that signals, oh, we have to go to another thing and and then another, right? That's always kind of the the cue. But then as we go into adulthood and a lot of people go into the business on their own, we don't have that kind of, we often forget, I should say, to place that structure on ourselves, which is kind of weird because we're like, well, we're used to doing that for years. And then now we're like, oh, well, no wonder nothing gets done, right? It's kind of, kind of the point. But what I love also about your story is that, okay, we're shifting the format from scrolling to reading, which, I mean, there's two things happening there. One is, of course, you're looking at it from the perspective of the end product, which I think is so important for anyone who's in, um, you know, looking to, to push something ahead is sometimes we're like working on it in kind of the middle phase. And then we forget to look at it from oh, this is what people are actually going to look at, right? That's that's definitely one. And then the second thing that I love about what you said, Lynn, was that, okay, you miss certain things in different formats. Mm-hmm. And um, and I think just even shifting, shifting the way you're doing things is so interesting because, okay, I was on the computer. Now I'm going to pick up other things in this other format, whether or not we like the print or, or analog, whatever it is. Um, I mean, I'm pretty old school. I love the print, but um, I agree with you. I mean, I, I live on, in, on the computer now, but um, Liz, I mean, for your book, right? Uh, surfing, uh, is it Surfing on Rocks? Did you do everything also on the computer or did you kind of move more towards the, the print direction? It took me two and a half years to write the book. Uh, it was not easy. I don't consider myself a writer. I struggle to write. Yeah, uh, I've never been a good writer. I had people like Lynn carry me through high school and college to write. Um, but uh, I typed most of it online. And when we got to the final drafts, I printed it out, uh, printed it out, sent it to friends, printed it out, read it out loud, printed it out in different fonts and different lines facing and different page sizes, sent it to the to Amazon to be printed and published and got the copy and I was like oh there are so many typos in this how is that still possible and I had an editor uh so uh wound up seeing those in the book that I didn't even notice on paper or online so uh it was a lot of edits and re-edits and you know my editor kept saying to me just keep writing just keep writing just keep writing your stories down uh And like Lynn said earlier, something that's been helping me as a business owner lately is doing the the voice to text on Google. Um, So for my company, Winemaker, we host weekly workshops for teachers. And uh, I can't write that copy for the events. Like it just, it's like torture, torture. I spent five hours this morning doing it. And what I realized was that I need to just tell someone about it record that and then type it because when I tell someone about it, it makes sense. It's easy to understand. They get it. They get why it's important. 
So that's what I'm starting to work on now is more voice to text yeah, and uh, it's, technologies. And it's so interesting that you mentioned that, that just kind of getting out of your head and getting it out of your head as well is kind of an important uh, bridge that a lot of people are trying to ignore. Like they're trying to get from, I guess using Tom's analogy, from point A straight to point B without actually, okay, this actual, this actual bridge is actually important. And your bridge is like, oh, I'm just going to say it. I'm going to say it, right? Um, and I think we all have to find this in whatever activities that we're trying to, to, to finish, right? And, um, and just kind of finding one or two things that can take us to that point. Now, I am curious, though, um, Tom, you know, you having been in aviation, I know that most of your flight is smooth and amazing. But if you were to uh, write a story about you know your time in aviation. What are some things that and because on the podcast we talk about working and thinking of our work in terms of legacy. What do we want to leave behind for people to maybe not even read, just to know about? Right, long after we're gone, long after maybe even we're in business. But what do we want to leave behind? Like for you, what are some things that? big or small, whatever it is, that kind of stood out to you and be like, you know what, maybe one day I'll tell somebody about this. You know, like, what are some of those things that come to mind? It's, it's a small community of, of uh, individuals. And I feel like it's a, a very, very small group that can really understand the, the complexities of, of what it takes to certify and to produce these types of things. What's the community like? Because I know I've heard this. I'm, I've, I've actually talked to a number of people in aviation as well. And they say the, the exact same thing that you're saying. They're like, we all know each other. It's a small community. And, um, and it seems to be consistent throughout. Like it's not, it's not like it, that's one thing that's going to change or suddenly everyone's going to be flying or uh, be in aviation. Um, is it kind of like, a, does it, I'm, and I'm asking this, of course, because I'm outside of the, the domain, but uh, did it feel like when you started in aviation, did it feel like you're, you're going into some kind of like, oh, a club almost that you're kind of like, oh, this is what it's like, or is it not? Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, uh, it's something that I'm very proud of uh, of working on in an industry where you see such complex machines flying through the air and the the quality and the safety that's involved in that. You know, if you were to apply the same level of safety and quality uh, in aviation to other industries and other market segments, it'd be radically different. You know, the if you compare it to accidents, you know, accidents or errors in a hospital or um, driving accidents or mechanical failures in any other industry, it's, it's on a whole nother level uh, of certification and qualifications in aviation. Um, and, and that's something that I, I enjoy. And, and, uh, you know, I go back to, I, I really didn't care for school that much. I, I, got a four-year degree, I have an MBA, and I, I did what I had to do, and, and, I, and I'm not a book reader at all, <laughs> um, you know, it's something I just don't do, I don't enjoy personally, but I find myself reading federal regulations and how to comply with, uh, uh, you know, federal law and uh, compliance to regulations, and and I just find that I'm in, I, I have no problem reading 
you know, for hours on how to find a way to certify this part or this aspect of a uh, installation, but reading so, books. Not for you. Yeah. <laughs> this is yeah. so interesting because I've encountered a handful of, you know, these unique inv- individuals like you who are like, Oh, I hate this other thing that everyone else loves, but then I'm actually good at this other thing that everyone else hates. Right. And it's mm-hmm. so interesting because every time um, a student or whoever uh, comes to good girl grade and be like, Talia, what do I, how do I kind of, you know, maybe earn a high side hustle or whatever. And they come up with all these ideas and they go, well, why would anybody want to pay for that? And I, I go, well, that's because to other people that, that's bothersome and you're good at it and you actually love doing it. I'm sure Lynn with her, you know, with her just amazing skills in writing like you, I mean, some people just don't, I mean, they're like, that's not something that I'm interested in or whatever. Right. And just kind of having this understanding of we, we we're gifting other people something that we enjoy and love, even if, if it means that they, you know, they, it solves something that they, it's kind of like this itch almost. Right. So I always encourage that for people who are like, well, what should I really do? I'm like, well, just name some of them and find people who need help doing that because they don't like doing it <laughs> because there are people who just don't like doing that um yeah. so and for liz of course your role is in stem i think a lot of people don't understand it it's still a cloud and i love that you're sharing this with um all of these these uh, amazing educators in the uh in just kind of this uh, interweb so uh talk about um lynn i'm curious to hear what are some next thing uh, some things that's happening in in the next whatever few months, a few a year or two that you're planning for your business with uh, working with obviously students, but also novelists. Uh, what are some things that people can look forward to when they check you out? So I am sort of, you know, the baby business um, case study that has gone zero to 60 this year. And it's been amazing. I've served a lot of different students since I left. I was at Duke University prior And so the next year, um, I'm actually taking a semester off from my MFA program so that I can build the business to hire a couple other essay consultants, because there was a point this summer where I had too much business, but I made it happen. (laughs) And, um, you know, I'm, I'm, it's nice to be an independent person. It's great. But I've worked for years on teams and I've hired and recruited teachers and trained teachers. So I have a PD background like Liz and I'm ready to expand to serve more students because I have a method and a structure that, you know, back to your thing of give something that people need. Parents don't want to be the college essay consultant mm-hmm. and they want a reasonably priced model where they can, whether it's the $200, just look at my kid's draft to, I need somebody to coach my kid for two to four weeks. So I have all these different little plans and I, I have a couple people in mind that I want to recruit and people, you know, fabulous teachers and coaches over the years that, that would be great to so that I can serve triple the students that I did last year um, or this past year. Uh, the other thing is to put out a book. And I don't know if you've heard, I want to say this for families out there who, you know, can't afford college essay services right now, which I totally understand. College essay guy is a free resource and he is a guru and a magnificent human being in California with tons of free resources. And he has a book on how to write college essay. It's beautiful. It's got all these wonderful model essays. I am a lesson planner at heart. And so Liz's whole like step-by-step and then what's the benefit of this? I feel like I could put out a guide of all my handouts I've been giving kids, these little strategies I'm teaching them about scene and summary and all the, just the very 
granular things? Because I see a lot of modeling out there, like here's a great college essay, but how do you get there from what you started with? And I want to write the in-between piece, which I don't see anywhere else. I don't see the like, I mean, I think on Teachers Paid Teachers, there might be a couple lesson plans for teachers to do this, but I want to make it like a, a home guide for parents and kids who can't afford the $200 service, but they can afford a $15 book with a bunch of lessons and activities to go through. So right. that's my next step. Um, you know, I mean, like you, Talia, who's got kids and juggling business and consulting, I'm like, this is one of my big, the books like on the shelf there is like, Oh, I hope to get to that. But I definitely yeah. just want to expand the business in year two. So that's amazing. <laughs> well, that's exciting. It looks like the, it sounds like there's a lot of things happening. Um, how about you, Liz, with, um, with why, um, why makers and like, what are your, um, you know, what, what are your kind of a vision for, uh, for people that you work with, the educators that you're working with who can maybe check you out on your website? What are some things that they can look forward to? Yeah, so next year we're hoping to dive deeper into design thinking, uh, giving more resources to help teachers and students understand what design thinking is and why, why we need to get our students to be using that language uh, because all of the big businesses and industries are using design thinking to solve their problems. So over the next year, we're going to be rolling out tons of resources for teachers, new workshops for teachers, um, just lots of ways to engage with teachers. We're also going to international next year, we're going over to Europe and hopefully Southeast Asia to do some work over there with some international schools. So really excited about the growth. It's all happening very quickly. Um, you know, since Typically, I would go to schools and train teachers at school. But since I'm not allowed to go to schools anymore, I'm doing it a lot remotely. And, you know, we send kits of supplies to teachers. They get at home, hop on a Zoom, do a workshop with us, uh, and they leave with strategies they could do with their kids, with their students as well. So we're really excited about that's exciting. all the new things that are yeah, coming. Yeah, there's lots of growth there. I can totally see the potential just mm-hmm. and so many different parts of the world that's not yet uh, you know, included in this amazing work that you're doing. So I, yeah, kudos to that. I look forward to kind of that growth. And Tom, for you with, uh, with Talco.Aero, you mentioned you're actually kind of thinking of maybe transitioning and exiting. Is that kind of something that you're, uh, you're looking forward to in the next year? Well, you know, I've been in a lot of small businesses and uh, my, my family has been in small businesses and uh, I've acquired small businesses and I found that normally people want to sell their business when it's either plateaued or actually on the decline. And uh, it's hard to sell or excite a buyer uh, when it's on uh, on the decline or you're, you're getting older and they're just not doing as much business. And uh, now surprisingly with COVID uh, our business in, in this, in, in this current small business we have is, it's been going great. Um, we found that airline pilots and, uh, you know, normally more well-off people uh, fly private travel and private aviation. And uh, they've, they've had more time at home and more time to tinker at their hangars now on their airplanes than ever before. And, uh, and, and reality is, you know, COVID is, it hasn't hurt the, the info, you know, workers and the, the white collar office folks as much as uh, one of the laborers. And uh, so far, our business has been really great. And yeah, we're, we're looking to just cycle through and, and uh, one, of, one of our, our skills or, or abilities is to 
by these small companies that didn't have marketing. They're owned by older individuals that couldn't take care, couldn't utilize, um, couldn't utilize uh, the social media and finding influencers to use for their business. Um, and, and we've leveraged a lot of that with social media, um, with with influencers, YouTube, and selling our products and services. And we're also leveraging our engineering and certification resources to add new products and, and upgrade and update products that have been locked in uh, the same design and that certification for the last 40 or 50 years in some cases. So, you know, we're, we're just always looking to, to leverage and, and, you know, double, triple, quadruple business and, and sell it and, and move on to other opportunities. Yeah, keep keep on with that flight. It is interesting, though, that you mentioned that because I do notice that with even just the home improvement uh, industry and that space in particular, a lot of people are actually that's actually booming right now because everyone's like, oh, I have nothing else to do. And I'll just, you know, fix up the house. Uh, But this has been an amazing conversation. We are coming to the conclusion of our uh, interview. So thank you all so, so much for all the audience who's listening. I will be sharing uh, links and information to Liz, uh, Lynn, Tom, and everybody uh, who's on uh, on the podcast right now. And you guys can check them out. They have so many amazing things to share with you guys. And uh, and for that, you guys, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Sure. Thanks. Thank you. Grow Solvers, don't forget to hit follow, subscribe, and collect if you're on Pandora. Let's get growing.